Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about our guest today. We're gonna learn a lot about building and scaling companies and then also financing them. So without further ado, Doug Winter, welcome to the show today. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So originally from the Midwest, from Ohio, how was saying life growing up there? Well, I lived in Ohio until I was about 13. So uh, that's a, that was a fair fair number of years back now. Um, but I, I enjoyed it. Grew up in the country, surrounded by farms. It was a great place to be a, to be a kid. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, served me well, uh, lack of distractions at a young age. Got it. And, and also your um, CV is quite impressive. I mean, we're talking about Virginia Tech, and then from there you do MIT. But you did a, a couple of things in MIT. So what did you do there in MIT? Yeah, so I was, I was, you know, really fortunate in my educational path. I think Virginia Tech was an incredible school for me. I studied engineering there, got an awful lot out of it, um, went off and started working in the nuclear power field, and then at some point realized that uh, that there, it wasn't the most vibrant and exciting uh, field that there was at the time, and and so decided to look at going back to uh, to graduate school. And I thought business school would be a good, even though as an engineer, I thought business school would be a good uh, background for me, a good change in direction. Um, but my heart was still, you know, an engineer. And so when this uh, particular program at, uh, at MIT appeared, to me, it looked like the, the perfect answer. And uh, it, the program was called, at the time, it was called LFM program. Now they call it the LGO, or Leaders for Global Operations Program. But it was a joint program between the business school and the engineering school. So they took engineers, taught them business in an attempt to, to grow better uh, operations folks to, to work at it. Uh, at, at large, you know, manufacturing and and technical companies, and um, it was an incredible program. It was very small. It was only about fifty uh, students in the class, uh, and was sponsored by some large U.S. manufacturing companies like Intel and Motorola and uh, Amazon, Dell, companies like that. And um, you know, it was really a unique chance to to get exposed and you know get a full MBA experience, but at the same time go deeper in, on the in the technical world and, uh, you know, really opened my eyes to, you know, a very different uh, uh, universe than what I'd been in as a very technical person kind of pri prior to that. So it was so, so walk us through that first um, experience entering the, um, the employment market, because I mean, it took you 
it took you a little bit until you finally took the um, the leap of faith and started your own business. So why don't you walk us uh, and the listeners, yeah. you know, through the um, through through what was it like, you know, like being an employee first. Sure. You know, it was it was it was an interesting transition because when I was at MIT, it was uh, kind of the very beginning of the dot com boom. And, uh, you know, I had got, I caught the bug when I was at MIT. I took some entrepreneurship classes. I was working on some side projects with uh, some of my classmates. You know, we built a small database for, you know, uh, keeping track of our classmates and, uh, you know, and, and doing it all online. And uh, at some point, you know, kind of towards the end of my second year, I turned to a few of my, my classmates and friends and said, hey, when are we ever going to be surrounded by so many really, really smart, unemployed people? Um, let's, let's not take a job. Let's go start a business. And we had all kinds of different ideas. And there were four or five of us that kind of agreed, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to go start. You know, we'll take six months. We'll go figure out what we're going to do. Um, and, and we'll have a lot of fun starting our own company. And then one by one, you know, each of them took a job you know, McKinsey or uh, Intel or whatever it was, you know, had lots of bills to pay as a starving graduate student, et cetera. And next thing I know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm all by myself. And truth of the matter is, I just, I didn't have the courage at that point in time to say, you know what, the heck with it. I'm just going to go, go for it on my own. So I found myself in a little bit of scramble mode. Like I got to find a job here. Uh, and so I started looking around and uh, one of my classmates, brother worked at uh, this tiny little, startup company out in San Diego called Qualcomm. Um, tiny at the time, it wasn't that tiny, but it was kind of before Qualcomm really burst onto the scene. And so I came out, had, having never been to California before, came out and, and uh, interviewed in San Diego with Qualcomm, and they had a really incredible culture uh, and, uh, you know, very uh, fast-moving, high-growth, you know, very entrepreneurial in its feel, certainly compared to some of the others that I, that I'd interviewed with. And so I was like, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to do. And I moved out to San Diego and I joined Qualcomm and, and, you know, it was one of the first, I don't know, I was in the like, employee number 3000 or something at Qualcomm, but, uh, uh, given where they are today, it was, it was kind of early fun and early fun days. Yeah. That, I think today they're like 30,000 or something. So, um, I'm sure the experience really, that was kind of like a rocket ship. So what was your uh, biggest learning from, from Qualcomm? So I got to Qualcomm, you know, and I was in a, a kind of a rotation program, you know, for uh, for for fresh uh, fresh hires at MBA people they thought you know had had leadership potential. So I rotated around into a couple of different roles, and you know, one of the things that happens at business school is you know they wind you up with you're a change agent. You know, you can, uh, you know, what would you do if you were the CEO of GE? You know, and they kind of put all these thoughts in your head, and then they send you off into the world uh, to change it, and then you quickly realize, wow, there's a lot of really smart people people here. Uh, and if I'm, uh, you know, and some of them work for me and, and I work as peers with some of them. And if I, you know, I better listen to what they have to say and learn. Uh, otherwise, you know, there's a lot of practical experience that I'm going to miss, um, that, that I can, that I can get from a lot of those folks. And I think that was one of my biggest learnings was, you know, it's, it sounds good on, and you learn a tremendous amount, you know, through the business school experience, but, uh, there's no substitute for practical real world experience. So why why did you move out of uh, Qualcomm and join One World? Well, I was at, I was at Qualcomm. I was having a lot of fun. It was also though it was you know got to be 1998, 1999. The, the dot com boom was was booming full force, and I was looking around, going you know so you know, Qualcomm is a great place, but but man, I really want to do something else. And I had got the the entrepreneurial bug. 
I think when I was in high school, my father had started a, um, a company that was, uh, he was in the construction business and he'd started a company that was doing, um, hazardous waste cleanup projects, you know, and it was, um, it was every bit exactly what it sounds like, uh, you know, going out and then cleaning up waste dumps and things of that nature, but it was his own company. There was three of them. They'd started it. It's called Remcor. And I remember in high school seeing him, you know, with, with hats and t-shirts and going to visit their new office and, and how excited that they all were. And I, you know, I just remember very distinctly feeling, I don't think I've ever seen him happier in, you know, his whole life, certainly professionally than he was at that point in time and thought, man, there's really something to this. And, uh, and so I'd gotten, I'd gotten the bug there and I'd always kind of wanted to do that. I, I told you the, the graduate school experience where I, I tried to talk some of my classmates into it. <laughs> and so what happened watching the dot-com boom go and seeing opportunity everywhere, you know, being, uh, being a bit of a geek and, and, you know, getting hands-on with the internet and all the different opportunities. Um, and one of my other classmates in, uh, from graduate school at MIT had, uh, had started a company and, uh, it was a services company kind of hired guns, helping other companies build their products. And I thought, man, I'd love to be part of it. And so he hired me to start up the West Coast uh, operations for him. And, you know, at that point in time, I wasn't, it wasn't my company, but I was one of the first, you know, handful of, of employees. And I was on the West Coast, kind of the only one on the West Coast starting up operations there. And uh, I, I had the bug and I got it bad. So. And what, what year was this? Uh, this was, uh, 1999. I think I started, uh, I started working there and a company was called one world software solutions. And, uh, it was a great dot com ride. It went up like a rocket ship and then kind of crashed back down to earth a little bit like a rocket ship. And I, I learned a tremendous amount so from the, you know, the relative safety of the front row, not, not having, uh, not being the, uh, you know, the, the CEO, but, but having a front row seat to it. So what was the, uh, biggest takeaway for you? Well, the biggest takeaway, honestly, was just, uh, I, I would say how important sales is, um, you know, as a technical person, engineer <clears throat> and getting into the operations of the business, you kind of look at sales and think, oh, that, you know, what's so hard about selling, right? It's, it's not that big of a deal. You know, if you have a great product, it's going to sell itself. If you, you know, if you, you, you can hire anybody to come in and, and sell it and what's the big deal. And then, you know, joining, uh, the startup company and, and finding myself as, you know, Hey, one of my main jobs is selling, whether it's selling to new employees that, Hey, you should join. This is a great company. You should be part of it. Or it's actually going out and calling customers. And, you know, when I, when I started on the West coast, I, you know, you know, started cold calling and trying to find opportunities. And I realized quickly how hard that was and how important it was. Um, and the, the other big takeaway, honestly, was this is a blast. You know, it's, it's hard. It's absolutely hard. It's tiring. You have to work your, your tail off. Uh, but it's incredibly rewarding. And, you know, what you do every day when you come to work makes a big difference. And to me, that was a, that was a huge, you know, I, I felt that intuitively, but getting a chance to get, you know, really get my hands dirty. That's when I knew, yeah, this is, this is the path I want to be on. Got it. And then from that, you moved to your last stint before you went at it on your own. And that was with Document Sciences Corp, which was later acquired, I believe, by Dell. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, so what happened, uh, is that, you know, after that company kind of crashed, I, uh, started my own company. It was called Objectiva Software, and it was also a software services business. And we ended up selling that after a couple of years to uh, a company here in San Diego that's called Document Sciences. And Document Sciences was a, a small NASDAQ company. It was one of those companies that went public, you know, at 
you know, with almost no revenue back in the early nineties when it was kind of popular to do that. And, um, you know, they acquired, uh, they acquired our company and we, uh, uh, you know, joined to kind of help them turn the business around. It was struggling quite a bit and, and we got involved in trying to help turn that business around. And after being successful in doing that, we, we actually tried to, uh, to buy the business. We tried to do a management buyout. We, we went and, and, uh, met up with some private equity partners and we tried, we made a bid to the board and said, Hey, we'd like to buy this business because it's too small to be public. And we think, you know, it's a great opportunity and we'd like to, to take it over and run it. Uh, and the board said, uh, Nice, good idea, but we think we're going to shop the business around. And then ultimately EMC, um, the documentum team that's, uh, that's up in, uh, in Pleasanton here in the Bay area, you know, they, uh, they were the ones that, uh, that, that outbid, uh, all the private equity firms and ended up winning. So I ended up, uh, selling the company to, uh, to, to, to them and became part of the EMC team, which as you said, is now, is now, uh, Dell and open text, depending on which piece. So Objectiva, so how big was the uh, was the business before it got acquired? So Objectiva grew to be, I think we were a um, couple, probably 100, 150 people. We were we were in the five to ten million dollar revenue range um, when we got acquired by uh, by Document Sciences. Right, and this is the business that you started it as the first one right after One World. That's right. Yeah, that was my first real startup where, you know, I was the I was the CEO. I had a couple of great business partners and we when we uh we kind of uh took off and, and and dove straight into the into the deep end. And this was, you know, our timing wasn't exactly good. It was uh, August 1st of 2001. Yeah. Um so, you know, we had about a month before uh, you know, before 9/11 happened and before the economy kind of screeched to a halt. Uh, and, uh, so our timing wasn't, wasn't really, <laughs> wasn't good at all, but, uh, at the same time we were successful in kind of growing the business, you know, at a reasonable pace and, uh, and had some great relationships with, with our customers, companies like document sciences that, uh, that we were helping out. And how did you meet the partners from, from this business, from Objectiva? Uh, it was a range. It was, uh, once one was a friend from, um, from, from graduate school, a different friend from graduate school. And, uh, and one was someone that I'd actually met at, at One World, um, there at, uh, at One World who had, uh, had moved out to San Diego and had become my, my partner in crime and kind of helping grow the West coast of that business. And we became right. friends. So really cool. Really cool. And, and in terms of the, uh, of the transaction, did you guys make that public? Uh, we, we did well with, which, uh, the, uh, yeah, no, we didn't. We didn't make that one public. It was largely, uh, it was our, largely stock. It was the opportunity yeah. to grow, you know, to help turn around Document Sciences, which was public. So you know, it was, it was liquid, which was, which was good. But then try to, you know, turn that, help turn that business around and grow it and, and sell it. And we ultimately did sell it for, I think it was around ninety million dollars. We sold it to EMC for. So it wasn't, it wasn't a huge transaction. Um, but it was a, uh, you know, a solid single. And one of those things that sort of gives you an idea like, Hey, we can do this, you know, we've got the confidence we can be successful. And, uh, and it was a good, you know, a good foundation to grow. Got it. So, so basically the, um, so you, you did stay a little bit after the transaction of document sciences, I think it was for almost two years, right. Until you went at it again. Is that That's right? right. Yeah, that that's exactly right. Um, you know, as part of the transaction, I was, you know, my 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 former boss, the CEO of Document Sciences, you know, stepped aside, and I became the GM that was in, in charge of integrating our product with the EMC product stack. And so, 
as part of that, we had, uh, I had, you know, had handcuffs that were for a year and a half. Um, and then ultimately, you know, ended up staying uh, a little bit longer through, through the transition. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, it was, it didn't take too long and, and EMC is a great company. There are a lot of really smart people there. Um, but I just didn't feel at home. I didn't feel like, uh, you know, that, uh, I had the impact that I wanted to have. And, uh, and I started getting kind of hungry for what's going to be next. Um, not long after we got there. So we, you know, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of discussions, a lot of, you know, weekend, uh, late dinners and, and other things where myself and the other founders of seismic were kind of bouncing around some ideas around what we could do. And, uh, before we kind of decided to, to all jump together at, uh, you know, at the beginning of 2010. So tell us about the uh, founding team behind Seismic. Like, how do you meet these guys and, and how did you all brainstorm and, and bring this to life? Yeah, so the founders, you know, there were um, three of us, or four of us total, three others uh, that, uh, you know, we were all working together at, uh, ultimately ended up together at EMC. Um, Ed Callan, who's our president and head of sales, uh, I had met him at, uh, at One World, actually. Um, we met at one world when that company was in its infancy, he was, he was helping lead the sales team there. And then we had gone separate ways. And then I'd recruited him back to join us at document sciences and help turn the sales team around there, which he, which he had done successfully. Um, Fred, she had actually met, uh, also, uh, at one world, he had worked with us from our, our China operations, our China team, and, uh, had then, uh, immigrated to the, to the States and was, uh, was chief architect. He was working on some of the document sciences products. Um, and he was, uh, you know, really solid engineer and architect and, and, uh, and passionate about what he was doing. And then Mark Romano, who's our CTO at seismic. Um, had actually led the engineering team at, at Document Sciences as well as played a couple of other roles. And so I met, you know, there were, they were people that I'd met at uh, in, in previous uh, previous jobs and previous lives. And, you know, we one thing that I've learned is uh, that it's a small world and, you know, the relationships that you build today are really valuable for you down the road. And, and that's been the case, whether it's been the you know, college uh, or grad school classmates that have joined the team um, or whether it's, you know, folks that I worked with in other jobs, you know, building those relationships and having people that follow each other and really enjoy working together. It's, it's, it's hugely powerful. Got it. And, and did you find like any challenges being such a big amount of, of co-founders? Uh, not really. You know, I think, um, there are always challenges, but the other side of the coin is, uh, is the benefit of having, you know, a, a more diverse group and a larger group and, and more opinions that come in, you know, we all kind of have had a role that we were good at, that we, that we knew how to play, you know, whether it was helping build the product or whether it was helping, you know, go, the go to market efforts. Uh, I, you know, and I can tell you, I see, you know, I see all the time, um, companies where, you know, they're early on in their, uh, in their life cycle and you see, Hey, they raised some money. And then the next announcement you see is they have like four or five new executives coming in. Yeah. And, uh, I just kept thinking, man, if I was sitting here at the boardroom, looking around the table at a bunch of faces and we're all trying to get to know each other and, you know, uh, how challenging, what an additional challenge that would be, uh, to, you know, at that early of a stage to have to deal with a bunch of people that you don't really know. And, and, you know, do they like each other? Don't they like each other? Who's good? You know, which one did you make a mistake on? You know, all that type of stuff. Uh, you know, a lot of that was taken off the table because there were people that I knew the strengths and weaknesses and they knew mine. We knew how to work together. You know, that was a very strong foundation for us. Yeah. So what ended up being the business model for seismic? 
So we're a SaaS uh, SaaS provider. Uh, we sell to enterprise companies. You know, and larger larger enterprises is really where we focus. Uh, the the business is uh, you know is called sales enablement, which is really you know, around helping sales and marketing teams work together more efficiently, more effectively. Uh, so in, in our particular area, it kind of leverages our experience is really around the content. And so if you think about enterprise sales cycles, you know, business to business selling, there's an awful lot of content, whether it's PowerPoints or videos or Google slides or, or um, you know, white papers, whatever it might be that are used through the sales cycle. And yet, if you go to most larger companies, you hear things like, you know, I can never find what I need. It takes me forever to put together the, the presentation materials that I need for my meetings you know, I'm drowning in content, but I don't know what's good and what's not good. You know, from the marketers, you hear things like we, we create all this content. We never know if anyone uses it or if they don't use it. And so we've created a platform with Seismic to, to help solve that problem. Um, you know, we allow the marketers a lot of visibility into what's happening. We provide them with very robust content management tools so they can scale up to thousands or tens of thousands of pieces of content and yet deliver it precisely to the salespeople in the field, you know, at the right time, um, you know, the right content, uh, take advantage of all the data that's available, collect a lot of, of data to be able to, to add a lot more intelligence and visibility into the process. And, right. um, yeah, we've, um, you know, we started selling the product in 2012, uh, you know, we kind of had a, sl a slow start on the, on the company as, as many companies do, where we were, you know, kind of winding down other things and, and starting to build out the product, started selling it in 2012. Um, we didn't take any funding until, you know, kind of late, uh, 2013. So we really kind of ramp, ramp things up and starting in 2013 and, uh, you know, we, we've been going at it, uh, we've been going at it hard ever since. And you've, so you, so you bootstrapped the operation until 2013 because you guys got started in 2011. We did. Yeah. We boots, we bootstrapped the business for a couple of years. Um, you know, typical story founders are, you know, we're not going to take salary for a while. Um, you know, kind of hired a couple of people, but I gave them equity and, and, and less than salary and kind of, so we were able to bootstrap, took some of the proceeds and, and profits off of the previous, uh, success that we had with objective and, and document sciences and, and, uh, and basically went all in. I mean, I kind of took uh, pretty much uh, everything that I had and, and put it back in the middle of the table and said, you know, we're all in on this business. We think this is a great business. And to be honest, you know, early on, we thought, let's let's do this without any outside investment. You know, we think we can we can grow a nice, you know, a nice business. We could grow a hundred million dollar business and in, in a couple of years and have a lot of fun. And, you know, without the complexity and stress of, of having, you know, outside investors and, and uh, you know, accelerated uh, accelerated expectations. Um, and then what happened is we got to 2013 and we'd gotten, you know, a little bit of revenue um, we had a product that when we showed it to customers, they went, wow, this is amazing. I didn't know you could do this. And the customers that we had, you know, really were really loyal and, and incredibly zealous about what we were doing. And I looked around the table and I'm like, okay, we have, you know, two people in sales and no one in marketing, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna watch the whole market go, you know, go fly by us if we don't, if we don't accelerate and go a little bit faster. So let's go try to raise some money and see, and see what we can do. And, um, and that's, that's when we went out and started, uh, down the path of trying to, to, to raise some venture funding. Got it. And we'll talk about fundraising just, um, just in a, in a little bit. So let me ask you this, uh, did you have, did you have like any moment a eh, dog where you were like, because obviously you were bootstrapping, I mean, it's, it's, it's rough. I mean, when you have like the financial muscle, then there's like obviously certain mistakes that you can do and, 
and you may be okay and recover from that as long as you learn fast. But when you're bootstrapping, I mean, it's it's really tough because you're literally always on your on your toes. So so did you have ever a moment where you were like, this doesn't look very well? <laughs> yeah, you know, it seems uh, it seems like a million years ago. Um, but, uh, but absolutely. I would say there were, there were lots of moments when I, I woke up and was like, wait a minute, what, what, what have I done here? Um, one that stands out in particular, um, I'll never forget because it was, it was, it was leap day. Uh, it, it was February 29th and I had a big demo, uh, at a potential customer and, um, I was there with, with Ed and the co-founders and, you know, before the demo, we're in the lobby and we're practicing and everything's going great. And then we go upstairs and we get set up and we get hooked up into the computer, uh, into the, you know, the, 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 the screen and everything. And all of a sudden everything's acting weird, you know, stuff just would work. And then two seconds later it wouldn't work. And it was just all over the place. And I'm on my phone and Ed's on his phone texting with our, uh, with our CTO back in San Diego, what's going on. We don't understand. Turns out that, uh, our, our hosting provider, um, had had a, a bug that, uh, was a, you know, leap day related and, uh, caused some certificates to go out or, or something along those lines to where they were having intermittent outages. And so I'm in the middle of this room with, I don't know, 13 executives from, uh, from our, our potential customer and, uh, you know, tap dancing like crazy, trying to, you know, show what works and hide from what doesn't work and, and, uh, and dancing all over the place. And, uh, you know, we ended, they ended up becoming a customer, still a customer today, you know, all these, all these years later. Uh, but we walked out of the meeting going, well, that was, you know, I can't believe that just happened. You know, that was, uh, that was terrible. And then, uh, you know, I'm getting a, a ride from Ed back to the airport and on the way back to the airport, we had this other big deal in the pipeline, you know, it was a, it was a potential partnership and, you know, we were looking at it as a, maybe a million or $2 million kind of partnership opportunity that was really going to accelerate what we were doing. And, you know, in the car on the way to the airport, they called and they're like, yeah, you know what? We just think we're going to do this ourselves rather than partner with you guys. And, uh, I remember that I'll never forget that day. And, and, uh, and Ed dropping me off at the airport and we kind of looked at each other like, Oh man, this is, this is, this is bad. Um, and it turned out the partnership was, uh, ended up to be, you know, would have been a cool opportunity, but oh well, it didn't happen. And we ended up getting that customer and, and, uh, and as I said, they're still with us all these years later. Um, so, you know, things turned around, but that was, that was probably the darkest day I remember. That's amazing. And normally, like when when you're dealing with those dark days, like I don't know, like what any any advice? Because I mean, the people that are listening, uh, there's not such thing as a straight line, right? No. And and you've come across. I mean, you you've come a long way. So so how how do you typically deal with 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 those dark moments? You know, it's um one of the things I've I've learned over the years is as CEO, one of the toughest parts of the job is you have to be the counterbalance. Whenever everything is going great, you want a big deal, you crushed your quarter, you know, you're beating your competition, your customer's super happy, you know, you raise money, whatever it is, you know, everyone's bouncing around the office, everyone's so excited and the energy level's so high, you've got to be the one to kind of pull them back down to earth, right? And you want to go celebrate, you want to pop the champagne yourself, but you have to be the one to kind of make sure that everyone remembers, Hey, this is a, a temporary state and we have to keep working if we want to keep going. And the opposite is also true. You know, when you have, you know, Oh, we lost a deal or, you know, something's not going well, you have to be the one that kind of 
picks up the company, picks up the team, picks up your own team and lifts them up and says, Hey, you know what? This is going to be great. It's going to be fine. We're going to keep moving. And emotionally that's, that's difficult because it's the actual, you know, it's hundred percent the opposite of what you want to do. And you just have to kind of find the strength to, to pull in the, in the other direction. And I think just my advice to, to, to other CEOs and entrepreneurs is, you know, you got to try to kind of stay steady. Um, even when you really, really, really don't want to, you have to kind of be the one that, that, that can stay steady and, and keep the ship, keep the ship on track that it's definitely not all up to up and to the right. You know, it's, it's a, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. I mean, there are always great companies that go from, you know, zero to a billion dollars in, in a year. You know, those are, those are amazing. And I have tons of respect for them, but far, far more success stories are built, you know, slowly with lots of effort and continuous effort and setbacks and just never giving up. And I think that's the proven, the proven formula that, that most people need to be ready for. Persistence. I Persistence, love it. Persistence. Yes. Yeah. So, Doug, uh, you guys have raised quite a bit of, mo of money. So, why don't why don't you um, kind of like make us insiders for a minute into how that process of fundraising has has been for you guys? How much money did you raise in total? So, we've raised uh, um, 175 million in total, uh, and you know we're we're uh, you know as I said, we we started down out thinking, oh, we're not gonna we're not gonna raise any outside any outside money. We'll just do this ourselves and and, and see what happens. Um, and when we decided, you know, this is a real much bigger opportunity than we originally imagined that it was. Uh, and, uh, we saw the opportunity in front of us, you know, to build a, a you know, billion dollar business and $10 billion business. You know, we, uh, we realized, Hey, if we're going to go faster, we're going to need, you know, help. We're going to need advisors who've done this before, and we're obviously going to need capital. So, you know, the first thing that I was worried about was fundraising can be incredibly distracting. Uh, you know, you really have to dedicate yourself to it in order to be successful uh, for at least for a period of time. And, and I was worried about that. So I kind of said to the team and having a trusted team here that makes this easier. Um, but, you know, I turned to the team and I said, look, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to call you in when I need help. You guys trust you run the business and uh, and and do well. And um, and so I, I went to. Uh, a, a few friends that I had who'd successfully raised money or who had been entrepreneurs uh, or were, had been in, in, in the venture world. And I said, you know, who should I talk to? Here's the kind of firms that I think might fit. Do you have any good uh, introductions? And so I ended up getting, you know, 15 or so introductions and, uh, you know, the VCs, the early stage VCs, you know, that their job is to look for entrepreneurs. And so if you have a, a halfway decent sounding business and you get a nice warm introduction, they'll almost always take the meeting with you. Um, but, uh, but you know, the bar is very high cause they're looking at, you know, you know, couple, couple deals a day, potentially coming in the door, maybe more. And, uh, and so the bar is really high and I'd never done this before. And, and I dealt with the private equity firms, but I hadn't, uh, hadn't ever done kind of much. VC, traditional VC, early stage. I look back at the old deck and, and think, uh, wow, that was really terrible. What was I thinking? Um, <laughs> but, it always uh, happens. It always happens. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, uh, you know, learn through the process, uh, learn quickly kind of uh, how, what part of the message resonated and what the best way to kind of structure the conversations were. Talk to some great firms. And, you know, when, uh, when I met with uh, with Pete Solvik, who's our, our Series A investor, and and Jackson Square, you know, just really kind of clicked. 
I, I appreciated that they were there were a lot of operators there at that firm. They were all successful entrepreneurs or people who had, had been in operating roles at uh, at successful companies, which which meant a lot to me. Um, they were a fairly small firm, not a lot of overhead. Um, you know, like to get hands on with their customers. Um, Pete himself had been the you know first investor at at, uh, at DocuSign, and I really appreciated that. You know what a great success story that was, and and also how. Um, patient they had been and then, and that they had been in that investment for a fairly long time. And, you know, I was expecting that we were going to build a big company. It wasn't going to happen in, in three years. Uh, and so it really just lined up um, and, uh, you know, got a chance to meet the rest of the partners there who are also great. And, uh, and we kind of quickly settled on, you know, this is, this is who we'd like uh, to, to be our investor, you know, out of the gate. How many, how many rejections did it take to, to get to Jackson Square Ventures? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I probably at some point could have told you exactly how many, but, uh, you know, time heals all wounds. Uh, I'm sure there were 10, you know, easily 10, uh, you know, and there, there, you know, it was a decent amount of interest and, uh, you know, everyone's, everyone's great and very professional, but, uh, you know, the reasons, uh, varied and, uh, and, you know, my messaging and my story, I think got more precise and better tuned over time as well. But yeah, I'm sure I heard 10 no's uh, before we got to, before we ended up here in yes and, and joining forces with Jackson Square. And do you think that perhaps one thing that made you guys click with just Jackson Square Ventures is the fact that maybe out of those 10 rejections, you were optimizing your story and taking a look at maybe you, you had some holes in the story? 100%. I try to learn from every one of those conversations, and I still, I still do, even as we've we've gotten much more uh, mature and sophisticated about how we how we do, you know, lat, later rounds. Um, you still listen and try to take feedback. Uh, you know, the biggest thing that I learned is that uh, you know that most of the venture capitals are uh, capitalists are so busy that you know he or she are looking at you know so many deals in such a short period of time. And they've seen a lot of different business models that you really need to get to the point. You know, there's, there's, uh, you can't count on a, a long attention span. You really need to hit the highlights first. You know, I remember being at a partner meeting and this was uh, series series B and I'm going through my, I'm going through my deck, you know, in front of the, all the partners and some of them are on the phone, some of them are in the room. And I'm like, you know, two pages in and I'm looking around and I'm, everybody's on their phones and people aren't really paying much attention. And then, you know, I put our customer slide up and I started telling the story of our customers and who they were. All of a sudden, everybody sat up and everybody's paying attention and the questions started coming and, you know, they ended up being very impressed and wanting to work with us. And every presentation I did since then, I start with the customers. Like, here's what our customers are. That you reacted like that, Doc, because anyone else uh, would have grabbed the computer with the pitch deck and thrown it at the guys <laughs> with the with the cell phones. No, that's unbelievable. Yeah, well, so, was, I was a little bit tempted, I have to admit, but uh, <laughs> I, I didn't think that was going to probably get me too far. Yeah, definitely no term sheet if you would have done that. So, so let me ask you this, Doc. The um, the other people, I mean, the cap table is pretty cool. The the people that you have, GMI Equity, General Atlantic. Lightspeed, uh, and then also T. Rowe Price. So, so how did you meet the other guys? I mean, is was this like via perhaps Jackson Square Ventures or other founders, or how did you get in front of those? Yeah. So, so what I noticed is as as difficult as it is to get in front of Series A investors, you know, you need you need some you need a warm reference basically, and a good story. Um, once you're in the system, once you've 
been plugged into the database in the sky, the matrix, um, people now know that you, that some credible investor that they respect um, saw an opportunity here and suddenly they're very interested in following up. So from, you know, six months after the series A round closed, I started getting phone calls and emails from all kinds of firms saying, Hey, we are interested in what you're doing. And, you know, we want to, we want to learn more. And, you know, you get a, a, a usually a, a junior analyst type of person from the firms and, you know, they want us 30 minutes to learn about the business. And, and I just made it a habit from very early on of saying yes and trying to allocate, you know, a, an hour a week for a couple of those calls or, you know, um, you know, at least, at least a couple each month where I would get on the phone, I would just introduce myself, I would learn about their firm, it was some names that you'd heard and some names that you hadn't heard, and I just kept a running list. I kept a, a running document where I just, you know, I met with so-and-so today, and here's what I think about the firm, and here's what their check size that they like to write, and, you know, they seem to be really knowledgeable of our space, or they had no idea about our space, they don't follow it, or, you know, I just kind of kept those notes. And then, you know, over time, the ones that I thought were a better fit uh, I would proactively reach out to them periodically and just say, Hey, we had a great quarter, you know, would love to catch up. And they almost always would respond. And so, you know, it was a very non-structured, um, non-official let's get to know each other process that, you know, I, I, you know, stretched out over, you know, basically the entire time between rounds. And I've just kept doing that on an ongoing basis. And the firms that call change with time as we get bigger, our profile changes, the investors who are a good fit, that also changes. And so, you know, over time that, that, that list has evolved, but what happens is, you know, as the business starts to accelerate and after a bit of time has gone by since the previous round, you know, somebody on the list starts to get really interested and they like, can we go faster? Can we preempt the process and, and jump ahead of everyone else? Um, yeah. and so, you know, at that point in time, you go back to the board and say, okay, I've got some, some real interest coming in. You know, maybe it's a little bit ahead of when we were going to fundraise. What do you guys think? And if they come back and say, let's, uh, let's proceed, then, then we'll, uh, we'll get a little bit more serious. We'll put a deck together and we'll try to, to manage the process and, and, and accelerate a future round. And then at that point in time, the existing investors and Jackson square has been, you know, great about this. We'll, we'll make intros and, and, uh, and bring, bring folks to the table. In fact, in this, even in this last round, you know, Pete was instrumental, um, in introducing us to the folks at, uh, at Lightspeed actually, um, GA also in, uh, introduced us to some folks at Lightspeed. So kind of all of a sudden Lightspeed, who we really hadn't been talking with was suddenly interested and showed up and, and ended up being one of the ones that we went with. Really cool. That was the series E, right? It was. Yeah. That was our, our last round. Yep. That we closed really back cool. in December. And that was a uh, hundred million, right? It was. That's right. That's great. That's great. So shifting gears here a little bit, how many employees do you have now at Seismic? So that's a great question. And literally I need to get one of those little like timers on my, uh, on my desk or something. <laughs> uh, we're in the, I think we're in the 600, uh, employee range now, 500 to 600, um, getting closer to 600 employees scattered. We have, uh, several offices, 
our headquarters are here in San Diego, um, but we've always had, as, as Ed Cownan, our president, he's based in Boston, we've always had a, a Boston office where a lot of our sales and marketing are headquartered. Uh, we also have a fairly significant office in Chicago and, and New York, and then we just ex- started expanding overseas. So we have uh, probably about uh, 25 or 30 people now in, uh, in London and, uh, and small offices in, in, uh, in Sydney and Melbourne. Got it. I mean, that's a, that's a fair number. So I guess, uh, you know, with, with such a big number of employees, how do you embrace culture, Doc? Yeah, that's a great question, you know, and, and I think it's so important um, because, and especially being spread out the way we are, you know, the Boston office, the Chicago office, the New York office, San Diego, London, they all have their own feel. They all have their own culture. Um, and, and, and I think that's a great thing. I think that diversity makes us a better company. Um, but at the same time, you want to make sure that there's common threads, you know, that, uh, that there is, you know, a, a, it, it still feels like so- seismic, even if it feels like a, a, you know, a slightly different flavor in each office. And so, you know, to me, those things, um, run and they, they start with the, the leadership team and they go through to, you know, being careful around who we hire and keeping that going. But, you know, the things we care about, we care a lot about the transparency. I always feel like, you know, I want uh, my door to be open. I want people to be able to ask me any question that they want. And I'm going to give them an honest answer. Even if the answer is, I can't really share that with you. Um, you know, people, uh, people appreciate that. We try to, you know, over communicate. I have a board meeting and then after the board meeting, I have an all hands meeting and I share as much as I can about what the board said and what we talked about and a lot of the content. Um, you know, the other thing that I think is really critical to our culture, you know, specifically is, you know, the, t- the culture is built on the fact that people celebrate each other's success. So we have a tradition called push pins and it started in the early days when we would win a deal, literally they would print out the logo of the company and, you know, cut it out with, you know, scissors or tear it out of the paper off the paper and they'd push pin it to the wall, you know, so we'd had, we started adding logos to the wall. And so, you know, that doesn't scale particularly well, especially when you know, we have, you know, five, 600 customers. So now it's an, it's an email that goes out, but every time a salesperson sends out an, an email, you know, she'll, she'll highlight, not just, Hey, this is what I did to be successful. And, you know, but she, she'll call attention to all the other people who helped, you know, I had help from the marketing team, putting together a great RFP response and, you know, so-and-so really helped me out and customer success, you know, went the extra mile to, to help with the onboarding conversations and with, preparation of some of the paperwork and SOWs and, you know, contracts helped me and product team had to get involved and do a roadmap discussion. And, you know, the fact that the person is, is celebrating a win, but by celebrating that win by sort of giving everyone else credit, I think is an important part of our, our culture. So it's things like that, that kind of go across the company that we try really hard to, to keep going that, that really, I think, define the unique aspect of our, of our, uh, of our culture, but it, it does certainly get harder and it's something I worry a lot about because to me, that's what makes the company what, who we are. And if we were able to lose that, I think that would, if we ever lost that, I would feel terribly. Yeah. I hear you. I mean, nothing like acknowledging others. That's, that's super, super powerful actually. So wh- where do you see dog, the, um, the sales and marketing space heading? I think it's a really exciting time where we are right now because, you know, technology is, is, is evolving and it's, it's enabling things that just weren't possible not that long ago, you know, and, and when we talk about the space, we talk about the evolving uh, dynamic between marketing and sales and how, you know, it used to be that marketing was tasked with, you know, um, eyeballs, 
you know, the, the mad men era, if you will, it was all about impressions and, you know, just go get the name out and do advertising. And then marketing evolved not that long ago, 10 or 15 years ago, started into, it's all about leads, you know, give me leads, give me leads, give me leads. And, and now what we see is that, um, as more and more of that process has been automated with, you know, the, the Mark Marketos and Eloquas and HubSpots of the world kind of automating the top of the funnel, you know, that marketers are being asked to reach further down in the funnel and help sellers directly and help, you know, and are being held accountable for revenue, not just impressions or eyeballs uh, or leads. And so, you know, I think that that is what's, what's driving the industry forward. You know, the sales enablement space is, has really exploded. If you look at the, you know, the number, uh, one of the things I, I, statistics I found while we were doing our fundraising is, you know, that, um, if you look at the number of people in LinkedIn who have sales enablement in their job title, and then you look at the number of people of, jo- of open job openings for people with sales enablement in their job title, they're almost the same, which means that the, the you know, that the, the number of people with, uh, and, and opportunities there are in that space is, is doubling in a very fast rate, you know, every, every three, four months or so, the number of people in that space is doubling. And, you know, we, uh, um, we certainly can't uh, can't take credit for that. I think, uh, although hopefully our success and the success of our customers is is, is contributing, um, you know the 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 fact that the market is really ready for solutions like ours, and that the technology now allows things to be done that couldn't be done before. It, it makes for a very exciting time. Got it. Really, really cool. So um, I always ask this same question to guests on the on the show, Doug. And the question: Be ready. Be ready. Raise yourself for impact. So. If you, knowing what you know now, I mean, this is your your second rodeo uh, as a founder. I mean, you've come a long, long way, and and you know quite a bit. I mean, you you failed quite a bit. You've learned from that. You've had a lot of successes too in the journey. So, if you could go back to the past and give yourself one piece of advice to you to your younger self before starting a business, what would that be and why? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. Um, you know, I think it would be and uh, dwell on all the reasons why you can't do something. Um, and I think that uh, even though I, n- I now see that so clearly, there were many times in the past where, you know, you, you run into the doubt, you know, it, can we really do this? Can we really be successful? You know, we're not as smart as that company that, that did this amazing thing. And uh, my advice would be kind of, um, you know, you've got to trust yourself. You know, the only way you can possibly be successful is, is, is you go all in and, uh, and you, and you trust in your own, your own judgment and your own ability to execute. And, you know, you realize that, uh, you know, you can be successful and that making, that making mistakes is, is part of the process and, and not to get too, uh, too fixated on those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Doug, what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Oh, well, you can certainly, uh, reach me on, uh, on LinkedIn. That's probably my, my social media connection of, of choice. Um, or, uh, I'm also, uh, I'm also on Twitter. I'm not quite as, as active on Twitter. All the, uh, all the, uh, craziness that you see on, uh, Twitter from entrepreneurs scares me away. So, uh, but I'm, I'm on Twitter as well. And then, uh, and certainly you can also send me an email dwinner at seismic.com and I'll, I'll be happy to, uh, to get back to folks, uh, that way. Amazing, Doc. Thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity, and uh, it's been great speaking with you. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.